Welcome to Home Education Matters, the weekly podcast supporting you on your home education journey. Welcome to Home Education Matters and today we're going to be talking about biology and we're primarily focusing uh, on biology at Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4. So this is pretty much sort of the run-up to IGCSE biology and we've done an episode on physics and that was very good and we've done episodes, we've done GCSE kind of style deep dives on MFL, Modern Foreign Languages. What else have we done? Oh yes, we've done We've done deep dives on maths. We've done deep dives on modern foreign languages. We've done physics. And now we are doing biology. And I'm joined today by Elizabeth from Sinclair Education. And she is going to be guiding us through biology at GCSE level or sort of kind of key stage three, because I have a bit of a thing about key stage three, but we will get to that, I'm sure, as part of the podcast. And those that have heard my other podcasts will know exactly my thing about key stage three. So you can just skip that bit. When you start hearing me like going on and on about key stage three, the the veterans of the podcast will just skip ahead because they'll be like, we've heard this, Eleanor. We don't need to hear it a second time. But anyway, uh, (laughs) Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. (laughs) Do tell us a little bit about your, you know, uh, who you are and how you found yourself in the home education sector. So I've been teaching for a while now, like a while, while. I think I qualified in 2008, taught in schools for a long time. And then I had three children very close together. And going back to work the last time round with three kids, all at school, or me at school, and then my nursery, I should say, was quite full on. And it got to the point where I just didn't see them. Um, so this is my second year now um, teaching and tutoring and teaching homeschool education. So and I love it. it I love teaching, I love being in the classroom, but actually I didn't know going in, this would be the direction my career kind of took, but I absolutely live and breathe what I do. And I love working with all the students that I come into contact with. And it's been a big shock to the system, big learning curve, because there's a lot for teachers and parents kind of going into homeschool and the IGCSE curriculums. But it's at the same time been absolutely amazing. And yeah, I might say this a few times, love what I do. What are the biggest differences, do you think, between being a teacher and being a tutor? I think for me, I would say it comes from that side. So for me as a parent, and I get a much better home life balance myself. But actually, the relationship that I have with students in my classroom and tutoring, I like how much more relaxed actually the setting is when it comes to tutoring. It's that I have small groups, I have one-on-one, and it's getting to those students a lot more with their needs and their learning on a lot more individual level. And I absolutely thrive and just love that interaction with those small groups or students just one-on-one. It's that interaction that I have with them in that more relaxed setting as well. And actually students who have opted to be in there, not these real reluctant students sat in the classroom to be like, why am I doing this? But young individuals that are like, actually, I really want to do science. I'm looking for this extra help and support around it. It's a really big shift, actually, and that took a bit of adjustment for me as well, taking it away from I was a head of subject, taking it as a head of subject, managing 300 students go through their GCSE, to actually working with families and individuals, what their goals are, 
it's a really nice shift actually to more focus on that rather than what the school's pushing me to do for a huge variety of students overall. It's a lot more personalised, I'd say. Yeah, and actually it's it's funny you say that because a friend of mine is just, uh, she's just trying to recruit a maths further maths A-level tutor. And she said, oh, we had this guy and he was really good, but he just did, didn't deliver the content quick enough for my daughter. So we're going to try someone else. And I said, whoa, 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 just tell him to deliver the content quicker because that's the, yeah, that's the beauty of being a tutor is that you can sort of say to your tutor, okay, this, these are the things I want to focus on. This is the way I want you to kind of like the general kind of vibe of the lesson and and this is the the glory of home education is that the parent is king because they're paying the bill it's not quite the same as schools right oh it was a definite shock to the system when I first started so like no I'm it was like when I'm like no I'm the expert listen to what I say but actually it's that relationship between the family and the tutor to work towards that common goal I can guide and advise but also I think it's a really nice position for families and students to be in where they're empowered to start to make decisions around action really interested in this topic. So let's go and follow it in that direction rather than be on Titan's curriculum, right? We're going to do this topic followed by this order. I love that flexibility where we can have those discussions. There's a certain key area that students are clearly really interested in. Like, well, actually, let's go and dive into that action in a bit more detail rather than then around to, oh, let's go through in here. But it's definitely at the same time, but it was shift for me to be like, actually, I need to work with people and with families. And they do have this autonomy and say over actually, I want to be focusing on this. And I love I that dynamic also. I think it's really, really powerful for students to actually be in that position too. I think this idea about experts and positioning yourself as an expert is a really interesting one. Because when I first started this podcast, I knew I wanted to do subject specific deep dives for GCSE level. So basically guiding us through the different curricula, GCSE versus IGCSE, you know, revision tips, that kind of thing. I knew I wanted to do that. And I thought what I'll do is I'll bring in tutors to do that because that made the most sense to me, right? Because as you say, you're the expert on the subject. And this is something that I've continued to do. However, part of me, part of my home education part of me sometimes thinks you're like, is this right for a home education podcast? Because in home education, the parent is the expert. That's the whole point. And in actual fact, in large swathes of home education, the child is actually the expert. And so there isn't this kind of putting yourself in in the role of expert. It's it's like it's almost like you just facilitate your child. Exactly that. And I take that role now as just that a facilitator that I have that knowledge and expertise where I can give advice, but also I'm not the one directing it either. It's I'm here to support and I love that position but also yeah the student has autonomy so there's been a couple of students that I tutor one-to-one where and I absolutely loved it in that they actually they were looking to find a tutor had a few one-to-one lessons with a few with a few different tutors so actually the student can make the choice of actually this is the individual that I want to work with and I think that's such a lovely like, position to be in as a family you have the option of right who's going to be working with my family is my child happy as well and I think that leads to much better relationships as well rather than me always sometimes be like I'm holding this person hostage they've been forced to do this lesson it's not actually they really wanted to do the subject we've met had a really good discussion around it they had some few options and this is the direction they want to go. I like that idea. There's been that almost consultation, but I'm not that person leading it. That's very much 
supporting, but not being like, right, you must do this and this is how you're going to get to that GCSE. It's that nice flexibility around the home education is that if you're subject to study, it's up to you when you want to sit that exam. Do you want to do it early? Do you want to do it, delay it a little bit? There's that, it's more fluid, but also in that case of you get more choice, which, yeah, I think it's a really nice position to be in. And I've really enjoyed the last couple of years been part of it. I think a lot of parents, when they look at tutors, they don't, um, they're not, uh they're not kind of rigorous enough in in um, just for, because of a certain amount of um we, we we are conditioned into believing that the teacher is the god and that parents aren't ever going to be able to do it as well and so i think sometimes when when home educators recruit te- recruit tutors to help them they're not sort of like strict enough like for example i always say to to parents home educating parents Try a few tutors, you know, see yeah. which your child likes and don't be, feel bad about saying, do you know what? You're lovely and it's great, but my son just wasn't liking it. He preferred right, someone yeah, else. The right combination. And there's nothing personal in that. It is, you need the best tutor. There are so many wonderful tutors out there. I'm a dream tutor for some people. <laughs> Others will not get along with me. They find like, no, she, <laughs> she winds me up. But it is that case of there's different personalities and how that meshes and melts together. And actually, if you get the right tutor fitted for that right student, you get a really nice position where there's that trust that's kind of built in, but also you've got that relationship also where you can have that knowledge and understanding about what's working best, how we're going to make the progress that they want and actually would be in line with their abilities and where they're at. One thing I wanted to ask you, and we are honestly, for anyone listening, I'm a terrible waffler, but I, I think it adds context to the podcast, but we are going to get onto biology in a minute. But one thing I wanted to ask you about was, do you think that when you home educate, when you tutor a home educated child, that you have a different kind of responsibility because you're often their single point of contact for that subject. So for example, if they're, my son, for example, he he may want to do physics at university. Now his physics tutor that he's had since he was 14, she knows that he is, that she is basically his route into university because she is his only teacher for that subject. Whereas in a school, you might have different teachers, they might come and go, whereas for you, it's just you, right? Hold, holding, holding, being held responsible for that one subject. I think there is a bit of a difference for me in that I was head of department. So actually, I have come from a culture in which I was actually responsible for 300 students. <laughs> there was that case of a couple didn't do as well or that rigour around right, the right tier of entry that actually did come down to me. So I think for me, I'm coming from a slightly different perspective because I led a lot of students all in one go. So for me, I feel actually now, because I know the students, the families, and it is actually, I know the families, I'm working for families, that I actually probably do feel more pressure working for a smaller number of families than I did for a massive department of 300 students in a cohort going through. Because you get, you do, like you say, you've that relationship, you've known them, you've worked with them for a long time, and you are literally the only person that they are going to see between then and when they get into university. I feel that pressure to an extent sometimes with students doing A-level, but then at the same time, they're off, they're going to classes, they have that combination of the two. While I think I hold myself to a pretty high standard most of the times I'm going through, 
But there is that constant idea of, right, actually, do I know exactly where they're at? Am I checking it? And it is that you do need to be quite proactive with yourself because it's not someone saying, right, we need to do this, this department, this is where we're at. It's actually that constant self-questioning for myself that I'm going through. Are they, do I know exactly where they're at? In a more relaxed way, actually, making constant little assessments of that. But it is, it has been an interesting shift for me because I thought, oh, fine like I've led departments I've been ultimately responsible for hundreds of children but it's definitely different when you're going through with families and no right I can't think right I've taught the student for a few years but they've had other teachers in the mix like this is their biology we're off we're going this is <laughs> I'm responsible for the journey all the way through so you're definitely right that there is that but Jesus there's a real responsibility there and I think I think I enjoy that aspect of it, but at the same time, it is that responsibility that you are always second guessing. And when I say second guessing, but always like always double checking yourself. Have I got this assessment right of where they're at? So advising them in the best way of where they're coming out and what's happening next. Yeah, interesting question at the same time. <laughs> I think a lot of it, like you say, depends on the tutor's personality as well. Because I mean, we've my son and my my children and I, we've used tutors for mostly the sciences because I'm not great on maths and science. And so we've used tutors for those kind of things off and on since they're about 13, I would say. And some tutors just naturally take it upon themselves to be responsible. You know, they send me the exam dates when they come out on the day the exam dates are come out. They're like, okay, like this is uh, this is the timeline. They do spreadsheets. They're like, okay, this is when we're going to start our revision. He's working at this grade. She's working at that grade. And the, and other ones I just don't hear from. I just it's like a big chasm of information. <laughs> it's just and happening. it's like ah, what's yeah? It's what? like tumbleweed blows through my email account when it comes to that tutor, and I have to constantly be kind of like, can I have some feedback? Can I know what's happening? What grade are they working at? And and it's it's very much I suppose a different approach to tutoring and just based on different personalities. However, I I promise that we. We are going to now move on to biology because yes. I could talk about this forever. So my first question, I've got a few things that we're going to be running through. So I'm just going to let our listeners know what we'll be covering, but I'm sure we'll be covering other stuff as well. Yeah. We're going to look at IGCSE versus GCSE, the different exam boards that you can sit. So that's Cambridge, AQA, Edexcel, that kind of thing. Practicals and the importance of them or not and how you do them. How you make biology fun. Uh, that's a, that's my own personal question. Uh, <laughs> and revision techniques or tips and any resources that um, Elizabeth might recommend for us. So that's the kind of vague running order. That's what you can expect over the next half an hour or so. Um, so first things, first things first, we're going to launch into IGCSE versus GCSE. So very quickly for our listeners who may be new to this, IGCSE stands for International GCSE, and it is a GCSE that does not have the practical component that the GCSE sciences have, which is basically when you go into a lab and you get a test tube and you do stuff with your test tube. So that's, well, I mean, that's massively simplifying from humanities girl there. Um, so yes, so that is, that's the G IGCSE versus GCSE. So um, Elizabeth, tell us a little bit about IGCSE versus GCSE when it comes to biology. In reality, there's not actually, there isn't any difference. Like in the actual running through of, the, there's different examples and different bits you can pick, but the content of it is exactly the same. 
the weird thing is that although this uh, we phrase it as a practical component in GCSE, which isn't in the IGCSE, there's actually more practical suggested in the IGCSE than there is in the GCSE. The only real difference that there is is that to sit the IGCSE exam, you do not need a teacher or a centre to sign a form to say that you've had access to the practicals. That's the only real difference. Well, that is the only difference that's between them. The requirements, that, that's literally the difference. But when it comes to the exam, I mark for both Edexcel IGCSE and AQA GCSE. There's no difference really in the, even across the exam boards, in the way in which the um, paper is set, the way in which it's assessed, there's no real difference. I think it's with the GCSE, 15% of your questions are practical based. Weirdly, in Edexcel IGCSE, it's around 20%. So actually you get more practical questions on your IGCSE than you do in the GCSE. I feel like I've said the word GCSE a lot. <laughs> it's it, it, after a while when you say a word too many uh, times, it's like it, it 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 like morphs into a strange substance in your mouth that, that uh, sounds weird. That or not? But <laughs> with the IGCSE, you still need to know the practicals and be able to discuss them. But the only difference is that someone hasn't in a classroom size say yes, this person's done the practical. That's the difference. I'm, I don't know why that's kind of come about the way it has, in honesty, because actually the rigour after working in classrooms around how those GCSE practicals are run, it, it's it's not massively involved. It's just one form for an entire cohort. Yes, they've done it. Let's send that off. But there is no real difference between the Edexcel or the... Why have I put Edexcel into that sentence? There's no difference between the GCSE or the IGCSE. I think there's a bit of panic when people like first go into home education where, oh, they can't do science GCSE. Well, no, but these courses are absolutely fine to kind of go through. And as far as universities or centres are concerned, they are equivalent. And so there is no real difference between them. Just you don't have to physically do the practicals for the IGCSE version. OK, good. And what are the exam boards offered for IGCSE? So the two that I mainly um, work with are your Cambridge and with Edexcel IGCSE. They tend to be the ones that have got more resources that are available as well, which we can chat about a bit later on. Majority of the students I work with tend to do the Edexcel IGCSE. The strength actually for both of them compared to GCSE is that there's no real high role foundation. And so it does mean that there's not a risk of falling off. When you're in schools, it's very much like, do we put them the higher, the foundation tier? There's a big kind of question mark around that. And you've got to make the right judgment. Otherwise, you catch them too low or you have the risk of falling off the other end. When doing those Edexcel or the Cambridge, the exam that you sit, you can actually get between a one to a nine on both of them, which does offer actually quite a nice bit of flexibility. It does mean that you see quite a wide variety of questions and different challenging questions in there. So we've got to cater for a wide proportion that's there. I've completely forgotten your question. It was really, really just about the two examples. So, for, for example, for, it's it's Cambridge and Edexcel IGCSE are the two big. Yeah. In actual fact, I don't think there are any other IGCSEs. No, AQA doesn't do them. I'm not too just again not too fly, But Cambridge uh, and Edexcel are the two big ones that you kind of come across. Edex. Edexcel seems to be a bit more straightforward, actually, with, right, here's your biology, chemistry, physics, here's your dual science. 
Cambridge have a lot of different versions and variations that actually getting into it can be a bit daunting actually and the curriculum is all very similar the exams are very similar but there are literally just there's a long list of different sciences the content across both exam boards though is pretty much exactly the same there are subtle differences between them but again, if you were to compare the Edexcel IGCSE compared to the Edexcel GCSE, slightly different orders, but actually the content is roughly the same in both. There are small differences across them. And same between Cambridge and Edexcel, but actually the content across all sciences, pretty much the same there too. Well, that's really interesting because um, there, in my experience, there are three different routes that it can take when it comes to IGCSE versus GCSE. You have subjects like history, which is uh, completely different depending on the exam board. I mean, completely different. The questions are different. The the papers are different. It's it's com- topics. Everything's different. Then you have things like maths, which are really similar apart from a couple of very key things that are in the IGCSE that aren't in the GCSE and vice versa so you need to know what they are but it sounds like for biology realistically the contents map each other regardless of exam boards or GCSE versus IGCSE. So there's there's certain parts for example that if I focus on Edexcel it doesn't kind of matter what you're going to be entered for you need to know about cell biology there are very subtle differences across exam boards similar to maths actually with right this is your core content needed. One thing that Edexcel IGCC does have that's a bit different towards the other ones is the focus on human disease is a bit less. And the reality behind that is because they actually have a whole IGCSE in human biology that then focuses on that a lot more. But there are these, the broad topics are very, very similar. You know that you're going to get cells, you're going to get organization of animals, you're going to get ecology. They are going to go there. There are differences, but we're talking specification points, like very minor differences and tweaks between them. But the general theme is pretty much consistent across. But it is that case of, I'd always say, when you're looking at resources, have the exam board in mind, because there are going to be those subtle differences. That me as a teacher, I'm like, yeah, no, I know which one kind of fits there. That bit's irrelevant for EdXI, GCSE. Take the examples you're doing, use their resources. Actually, if you start off in key stage three, for example, studying ecology, you can literally go wild a bit and study which parts do you like, because it's going to be within whichever GCSE curriculum that you pick. And same with cells as you kind of working your way through, that it'll be the foundations for whichever GCSE you start with. Yeah, and this actually leads me on to my Key Stage 3 rant. So for anyone listening who's heard this, feel free to skip ahead for five minutes. But of the whole point of Key Stage 3 is that you actually cover the same stuff that you then cover in GCSE. You just cover, you just cover it in a little bit more depth every time. And actually, biology, I mean, biology is one of those alongside... And, and mass is about the only exception I can think of where you actually learn uniquely new things every key stage. But biology is another of those where you're learning cells and animal cells and stuff really early on. And then you just learn them a bit more. You learn them a bit more. And then you learn. And it's this cyclical uh, approach Line to learn. Cycle. Yeah. And I think. Oh, I've not heard the rest of your rant, actually. So it's a bit more it was purely that, as I always advise, that everyone just skips key stage three, apart from for maths. And uh, realistically, if you're going to really go on to that. Key stage three mass is basically foundation level mass. So actually you're doing GCSEs early. So 
I, I just always say, I just don't see the point of Key Stage 3. It seems to me, and this is, okay, everyone's heard this one, but I'm going to say it again. <laughs> but I feel like it's when they decided to move the schools from everyone leaving at 14 to everyone leaving at 16, they added some some like extra content in. Yeah. And that was fluffer, fluffer Key Stage 3. That's that's my theory. There we are. Thrown it out there yet again. Say, there is that case of year nine in schools. Some people start with GCSE straight off. It's like, right, let's make this purposeful. Let's give ourselves extra time. But they have also come in and be like, why have you done this? Well, because the GCSE is massive. We'd like to get a start in a piece. Especially it's, for things like geography and history, which have such huge content, I think, at GCSE. They do. But also, like, for biology as well, it's... You notice it particularly with the biology content. There's not massively more biology content than there would be for chemistry or physics. But if you have a look at the size of a biology textbook compared to the chemistry and physics, they don't half make a meal of it. There's just it's so much thicker. There's not necessarily, if you look at it, it's meant to be the same amount of hours, it's the same amount of content. But I, I don't know what some of the authors of those textbooks have done. They've really bulked out. It's like, oh, this looks massive. But... I think the nice thing about like when it comes to if you're going to do key stage three, yeah, do cells. But actually, I like to more think of it as don't go too long without revising something. So actually learn it, go back around in your cycle. But actually, next time it is that case of like, let's revise it. We'll spend less time on this, but actually revise it is a nice model to get yourself into. So I was building curriculums when I had to do key stage three. We did cells in year seven at the start cells in year nine that start in the year 11 and it was a case of where I actually would need to make sure you still need cells from two years ago let's get revising this and then and how here's the bit actually we're going to stretch but you are right in that I teach a number of students now we're technically in year eight and what we're more doing as a model is we're going to stagger the GCSE entries that we're going to do our biology GCSE in the summer of next year we'll do our human biology six months later and then actually go on to the chemistry and the physics and so a lot of families seem to be doing different models and using that staggered entry instead, rather than they're like, right, let's study biology for five years. You would really be studying that for five, for five years as you went through. But it's, I've even got some students that, bless, there was a little, there was um, a little girl, it was a young girl who's going from year six into year seven, um, who wanted to secure a gap between key stage two and key stage three. And it's, I ran out of questions for it and we were using GCSE questions. And she was like, I was doing GCSE questions. Yeah, yeah, you were, because actually there is no difference between the challenging questions and some of the key stage three and GCSE. It's just that only challenging key stage four is how much more content and subject knowledge there is to know. And actually, you mentioned about staggering GCSEs and taking them early. And that's something that home educate. That's one of the wonderful freedoms about home educating. Biology is a lovely one to take early because if you I think if you think about the four sciences, if we skip human biology and, and just think about the other four sciences, um, you've got um, biology, which. OK, I'm just, <laughs> this, is, this is my one line description of, of each science. Biology, which is like a lot of memorizing content. Yeah, it's Chemistry, which is sort of like maps across a lot to maths and then memorizing things like um, balancing equations and stuff, and then memorizing things like um, uh, things about the periodic table and how different chemicals react, formulate basically. Then you've got <laughs> then you've got <laughs> physics, which is pretty maths heavy, um, big concepts, 
it's not all, always that easy to grasp quite abstract concepts. And, and then you have astronomy, which is the hardest maths of all the four, um, but probably the funnest content. So, I mean, normally I, I would say that biology is a good one to start. Chemistry and physics, you want to be taking roundabout when you're doing your GCSE maths because a lot of the maths is quite similar. Yeah, that's certainly true for the physics as well. Because it is, I think, in terms of percentages, it's that case of, and this is a rough guide, but you're looking at 10% maths in biology, 20 in chemistry, 30 in physics. And so you do see that subtle shift up. And mm. in fairness, if you can do your GCSE maths, you can do your GCSE physics because it's actually easy maths. <laughs> once you've learned the equations actually large well which we're talking biology but actually if you get into the physics 30 percent of your questions are going to be easy math questions if you're ready for that GCSE math at that time so you are right that actually doubling those up is a benefit as you go through but biology do you, do you think on. that my my super simplistic description of biology as basically memorizing lots of content is that deeply unfair <laughs> or am I just prejudiced against biology there are still, there are lots of skills to be applied within biology. Biology's additional, biology's clearly my favourite. I am very much biased towards it. Um, and it is, and it's weird because I love maths. It's actually, it was one of my strongest subjects. Because the fact that 10%-ish of that exam is going to be maths, there is more content actually as a result that's there. And that probably leads back to what I was saying earlier on about the fact that the biology textbook always looks the meatiest with the, like, the thickest pages out of the lot. It is the most content heavy and fact recall. I think a benefit to it that helps a lot of learners, um, especially if they're interested in Human biology in particular seems to be one area that students are more interested in. Because actually, when we're talking about the models and what's happening, it's the idea that actually this is happening to me, there's links to me, that sometimes those links and those fact recalls, because there's some relevance to it, makes it easy actually to learn as you're going through. It's my excuse why I'm so rubbish at plant biology. Like beyond <laughs> I just a teacher, it's all right, but you wouldn't want to teach me to teach at A-level content or beyond. I, I just lack any interest in it, I think. And that, I, for me, it means I really have to actively think about what I'm doing when it comes to plants. But university level, GCSE, I'm all right. But it is probably the most fact recall heavy. The one challenge that does come up with biology compared to chemistry or physics is that where the higher marks come in is the application questions where you get weird contacts. Now in chemistry, that doesn't tend to freak people out because it's just a different reaction. And people get very used to very early on having two chemicals whose names have not really ever thought much about reacting together. That's their weird contact. But for students, that's just a random practical that they have to now use. Actually, it all becomes the same context for them. While in biology, there are so many weird diseases, so many conditions, so many different animals that can be mentioned that where the more challenging questions of application where contexts come in, the exam board have literally limitless opportunities to throw in some weird disease that you've never heard about and be like, and now I need to talk about this? And that's where sometimes one of the difficulties with biology comes in, because you're right in that there's lots of fact recall to happen. And what does sometimes happen is when people are in the exam seeing these really weird names like I've not learned something that I'm meant to learn and then immediately puts people back people's backs up and they get a bit freaked out it's actually an application question it can happen in chemistry and physics but there does seem to be in biology this more like oh my goodness I haven't learned something I was meant to 
And, and that definitely is where the challenge in biology comes in. It's not the facts. It's more just getting resilient to, right, they've given me a weird context, right, what do I know that can help me answer this? That's not as common in chemistry or physics because, or in chemistry, it's all these different practicals that that's the application they're going to get you with. Biology, they can literally just name anything and get you to run with it. There's a lot of amphibians and hearts. That's where they do tend to do it. They give you a very weird diagram of a heart because you're like, nope, that is really horrible. But it's no, it's going to happen at the same time. There are these, in biology, you've always got an opportunity for a weird question to come around. That's really interesting you say that because my daughter exited her biology tuition lesson the other day and she was she was like she was like very plaintive and she was saying I didn't understand the question and I never learned any of that stuff and I and I thought and I said you must have learned it because she's in the revision stage of her biology now she's sitting it you know this summer coming and she was like no I've never learned that I've never learned it and of course now what you say it suddenly makes makes sense what she'd encountered. I've had so many people like leave exams like you've never taught me about a newt's heart I'm like why would I teach you about a newt's heart like, of course that happens um and like you can't see some weird drugs you've never mentioned this to me no I haven't but that's not what the question was about I promise you it was an application of something we have taught and that's where the challenge in biology does come in is that whatever reason it doesn't freak people out they see in chemistry physics it's like they're expecting it but in biology it's like nope that I it, it almost leads into this questioning of I've never been taught this like I can't be able to I can't answer this and that's where the challenge in biology comes in now it's that's what the difference is between a grade seven and a grade nine student it's knowing and being resilient with that and it's why they're doing it at the same time but the lead examiners of it a lot of them really love biology and they like to include these weird contacts so I'm like I really feel <laughs> I'm not sure now the time to get that engagement of science and interest in the exam but okay let's go with it yeah that's examiners for you though they like to put these little hurdles in place but th- like you say this is what differentiates between you know a seven and eight yeah. and a nine grade and they have to do it somehow so let's talk about practicals because I mean I've got this I've got this I this image in my mind of my children have done quite a lot of um, IGCSEs in science and I've always felt a little bit bad that they weren't in school with their like aprons on and like carving up a newt's heart or whatever the hell they do in biology practicals um I have images of frog's legs and I mean in chemistry you know like explosions and all these like amazing things but I know that you and I you and I we had a little chat about practicals before we did this podcast and you were saying that actually my image of practicals in school is maybe not the real it's not the reality of what actually is happening in schools no no and it is that case of there will be that like there will be a couple of token schools out there with amazing staffing amazing resources and amazing technicians that are doing just that but the reality is that the vast majority of schools are struggling with staffing they're struggling with technicians and they're struggling with funding to actually do this and actually having the climate right in a classroom for it. And so, don't get me wrong, I've had like a few chemical disasters where I have ended up with a purple fire at my desk and students loved it, but it was not meant to be the, that was not the purpose of that lesson. I just potassium. Got yeah, potassium. I got potassium and some water on my desk. It's all so, I remember from chemistry. Uh, but, but I think I've got, a, I've got a good class of students who will remember my purple fire where I did just that. But the, the day in, day out is actually, 
yeah, that isn't the reality. There will, there will be students, and there are, students will be doing practicals throughout years 10 and 11 if we focus on those. But actually, for biology, that's 10 practicals. One is the ruler drop test, where they'll be dropping a ruler and seeing how quickly they can catch it. It's not the most awe-inspiring practical, actually, that's out there. And there's a girl photosynthesis, where I have an hour of listening to 30 students, but like, can't see any bubbles no you can't because this practical never works the palm weed is long and truly dead by the time it gets into the classroom really tried but no it's, it's died it's gone but I think when the GCSEs came about that actually there's 10 practicals if I focus on biology there's 10 practicals there you were doing five a year and like I said one of them is that ruler drop test so there's nothing it isn't this day in day out practicals but also the learning that's taking place when some of these is happening is a little bit dodgy at best. Because actually for some of the classes, it just turns into an hour of kind of play about it. With the IGCSE, there's actually more practical opportunities that are there. And the nice thing is that you can either choose to be like, right, I'm going to learn the theory of it and be ready to be assessed because that's ultimately what you kind of need for it. You've also got that flexibility that something's really interesting me or I'd like to do this. There's no, there are 14 practicals in IGCSE that are recommended that what you need to be able to discuss. There's no reason why actually they can't be done in the home. Now you might need some modifications around it, but actually to go through that process of learning the material, so using resources, your tuition, it might be using YouTube videos, learning the practical and how it's meant to run. So then go through a process of actually, right, how am I going to modify this so I can try it at home? And a lot of materials you need are not particularly expensive. Like for biology, weighing scales and a measuring jug, pretty much half the equipment you're going to need. After that, you're looking at yeast, maybe cells. To actually go through that process of thinking about, right, how am I going to do this at home? It's probably making them learning a lot more meaningful anyway making that knowledge a lot more concrete so my kind of stance as the practicals go is not to be too worried about what's going on in the schools because well for some of them practicals just didn't happen for a good 18 months at all they're only really just getting me started but that there's nothing written off at home there's plenty of things that can be done within like I call it like kitchen science or kitchen biology but there's loads of bits that can be done at home and that research around it and then actually having a go at it that knowledge you formed there is so much more secure than being told, right, by a teacher, I need you to go and measure that piece of potato. You're not quite sure why. It's not going to mean much to you, but just go measure that and see if it goes up or down. Actually, well conducted at home, you've got a much bigger opportunity for learning than actually what might be happening in the equivalent of school practicals anyway. It's really reassuring because yeah. I think as home educator, home educating parents, we can sometimes worry that we're not exposing our child to enough of the kind of practical science. But what you're saying is that realistically, you can do a lot of the practicals at home. Yeah, it's the science itself. It's about forming a question and testing it. Now, that doesn't matter if you're using a conical flask or if you're using a glass that you can use a measuring jug to measure into. You're still making measurements. You're still making observations. You're still forming questions and trying to come up with a method to answer it. I think the nice thing about, about the groups actually there are around homeschooling is that if you are trying to think, but actually, we want to go as practical, I've done a think about how I can do it and I can't. 
is there's loads of parents that are out there, but also teachers on hand who'll give some advice about, right, actually, this is how you can modify it and have a go at it. But those actual fundamental skills that you'd look for in a scientist, it doesn't matter if you're in that lab or if you're at home with your weighing scales and measuring jug, that actually those fundamental skills are there. And I think, yeah, it's moving away from that misconception of I'm kind of missing out and not doing practicals. You can still do them if you want to. And that's the lovely bit of you can pick and choose the ones you actually want to do rather than like, no, I really don't want to do that. So if anyone is like, you can just go to the butchers and ask for a pluck of a heart. I'm veggie, so I'm not about to go, <laughs> go and ask. I'm like, I do not want to do that in my home. But actually, for the vast majority of weird equipment like that, my technician was going off to the butchers and asking. And <laughs> the nice thing with the EdXI, GCSE, and with the Cambridge, there's a lot of plant experiments as well that are quite easy and cheap to settle and have a go at. What about, I mean, I get the impression that part of the fun of biology is the fact that it is rooted in life. You know, like you say, when you're talking about human biology, it's, it's, it's immediately relevant to our lives in lots of ways. But I, um, I, have a, I didn't do biology at school. I did physics and chemistry and did very badly in them. And my perception of biology is based on pretty pretty fraught lessons with my daughter before I got her a tutor because I realized I was not helping. It was not working for me because if I had to see one more animal cell versus plant cell, I would have just thrown the book across the room. So my question for you is, you, you seem a pretty fun kind of person. So I'm guessing your lessons are pretty fun too. So how do you make biology GCSE fun? So I think... It's obviously very hard, like, especially doing group lessons. And that is probably something I need to find a bit more about. I'll provide guidance to families that, right, actually, if you want to try this at home, this is how you'll do it. But it's about encouraging those links that are going on and making that relevance. Because it's not just the fact it's more engaging, but if there's a meaning to what you're learning and it's relevant to you, your brain figures out and actually needs to store and retain it. And that makes a huge difference, i found, with recall as it goes through. So for me, with those group classes, it is or just the one-to-one to be like, right, here's the theory behind it, have that discussion around how we're going to do it, how we'll set it up. And I like, actually, here you go, everyone have a go. These are my recommendations for how you're going to have a try. And it's encouraging that freedom almost to explore as you're going through with, I actually, I found, I found this really interesting. Let's delve into that in a bit more detail and do some research around that rather than feeling like I have to now, right, we've come to the end of, I'm about to give a horrible example, but cells, and we really enjoyed this part, right? We're going to go to a completely different topic. We can kind of dive and take that through. I've got one student who's really into, um, she's more into the human biology, and she's currently working towards the GCSE instead in biology. But occasionally we'll kind of drift off and be like, well, actually, this is going to link to what we're doing in the future. It links to what we've done today. And it is just following that interest. It's following where the interest kind of takes but we also having a very tight routine behind it right here are specification points we've done to make sure I'm not going to forget it's exactly the same with home education in as much as for us as home educators it's all about harnessing the child's natural curiosity for the subject or whatever their passions are at the time and and linking that in and making it relevant so it sounds like your approach is exactly the same in that way one thing I wanted to ask you about you mentioned about how 
um you can sometimes get caught out when you get into the exam because they're asking questions and you're like oh, i haven't learned this and i don't know so so let's move on to our next bit which is about advice for revision because mm-hmm. is this is there anything particular with biology that you would recommend when it comes to revising it are there things that you need to just memorize are are, are there any apps or i don't know any sort of like resources online that you think are particularly helpful for revision how do you structure it how long do you think children need that kind of thing so I think as you're building through, it's that case of you want to give yourself a good few months of actually having time to consolidate and go through and revise what's happened. And also hopefully not get to the point of like 18 months down the line, be like, I've not looked at cells in a year and a half and actually have that process of re-teaching it. And so I think it is important, no matter how you're kind of working through the curriculum, is to be constantly just making those links back with how does this link to what we've learned before. So that hopefully when you get to the revision stage, it's easier. But when it comes to revision, it's a case of actually, there's loads of lovely revision activities and guides that are out there. The CGP are always nice and just structured in that they seem to just cut it down to, right, this is what you need to know. Because it's very hard to sometimes not get distracted by all the superfluous stuff that just doesn't matter. <laughs> it's just going to weigh you down at that last moment. For me, it's about when you're revising, pick a topic, make it active. So make something with what you need to learn. So have something available, like I know save my exams, CG pre-revision guides, something you're physically using. The other thing that I know, or I would always recommend is to use the specification itself. It sounds really boring, but actually that is the list of exactly what you need to know. So pick a few points, allocate yourself 45 minutes, produce a revision material around it, but then to ask yourself or make some questions around it and answers, answer yourself, get someone else to ask you them. But the there's lots of different bits and pieces out there that are honestly just trying to get you to part with money. The best thing that you can do is use the free exam questions. The best thing that you can do is answer as many past exam questions as you can, because after you've answered a good fair few of them, you realize that when you sit in the exam, it's a lot easier to sit it if you are literally been like, I know I've done this question or a similar kind of it before, because there's only so many ways that they can ask you the question. And for me, because I am an examiner, and one of my backgrounds is that I actually produce, so I am a tutor and work with homeschool education students, but one of the big side of my other kind of part of what I do is I produce bespoke resources for schools and produce curriculum materials for them. And one of the big things is that the majority of the content is assessed in a very common way that is actually relatively predictable, actually, what you're going to be asked and how you'll be asked it. There's obviously I can't be like, right, in your GCSE exam, you're going to be asked this, this, and this exactly. But there is a very repetitive pattern to it. You can know, I'm going to be asked some practical questions. I'm going to have to write a method. It's learning how to do and apply that. But with Edexcel in particular, getting hands-on past exam questions, there are literally just hundreds of them linked to the curriculum. And so for me, it's make some revision notes, learn that topic, test yourself, check it, with answering as many past exam questions as you can, because actually if that's been done well. You should be sat in your exam, looking at your paper, being like, I've seen this question before. I know how I'm meant to answer this. There will be, and I always kind of say to my students as they're going in, you're going to be asked the neat question. That question where you come out, you sat there and like, I don't know what, like, what? I've never seen this. 
But it's then unpicking, right, what are they actually asking me about? Because 100%, it's not going to be about the mute, it'll be about the heart. It's not about this weird drug, it's about drug testing. It's about then unpicking that question. And the way to get familiar with that is to see as many of those questions as possible beforehand. And the beautiful thing is you don't have to pay for it. There's so many exam boards out there or just websites that have launched like these big packs of, right, want to this exam, like this specification point, here you go, download it. And the main issue, actually, is you always get too much exam questions to work through. It always feels like, I can't work through these. Well, no, <laughs> this is 10 years of exams, three exams a year, you probably can't. But there's that such wide variety of free bits and pieces, but especially for all sciences, that's where I'd go. Like, use yeah. my notes, make something, and then just answer as many free exam questions as I can. The only thing I've got a guide against, I don't understand sounds a bit antagonistic I don't understand why it exists there are some people out there that will sell like um but will physically sell like example papers you don't need to buy an example paper just do one from five years previously yes you're not going to be asked those exact questions but they're going to be very similar and what's better to do is actually do an exam that's been set by the exam board you'll be doing rather than a teacher who's like I think I can write a paper well you probably you can, but it's not going to be actually to the standard that the actual exam board are going to produce. And the lovely thing is, yeah, like I said, they're all free, available, and the most powerful thing you can actually do, but only when you're confident with your topic. There'll be nothing more damaging to be like, right, I've learned this, I'm just going to see what happens to the exam questions without doing a bit of revision first. And it's that bit of this bite size in particular, I think I'm always biased towards them. It's using places that have already slimmed down that content to write, you just need to know this. Use that, then produce your own notes, and then go on to exam questions and practice. But if the investments for me, CGP at least were well-tested trial by loads of people, but there shouldn't be any need beyond that, says the person who sells the teaching resources. <laughs> <laughs> and, and tuition. <laughs> You're doing yourself out of business here, Elizabeth. But I do... I do completely know what you mean because we actually did a podcast recently on using exam papers for revision and this is pr predominantly what I've done when we've self-studied is we've had the textbook and then we've done exam papers and we've supplemented it with a bit a bit of stuff from Teachers Pay Teachers, a bit of stuff from TES Resources, a bit of stuff from YouTube. Um, I think we did Science with Hazel, some of her YouTube videos. So there are... There are things out there. Um, so what are your main sort of tips for free resources? You mentioned bite size and you mentioned, what else did you mention? So save my exams. I think they definitely try and That's get a right. bit free, but I've managed to, as of yet, go in and out to occasionally swap a bit of A-level chemistry. And I've managed to, you can get a lot of information there. And actually, there's, I think, a small subscription, but also you don't need to actually, to access a large proportion of it, pay anything at all. Um, but again, the YouTube channels, I particularly like Cognito, actually, for science. I What's think it called? Cognito. 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 Mm. They, I think, do, like, um, worksheets alongside that you can buy along with. The tricky thing is that, actually, for the IGCSEs, there's not YouTube channels that are just for the IGCSE science. But like I said earlier, the content is so similar across exam boards that, actually... You can start to use ones for GCSE, just pick the particular, it is just literally biology topic you're looking for, and loads of really good bits and pieces come up. 
We've got a lot of students who use Seneca as well, which um, you can get accounts for. I'd say use it when you come to do your revision, but their exam questions have not been written by someone who actually writes the exams. That actually what they sometimes give you and what it looks like in the exam are two very different things. And so it does show nicely sometimes that just because it is an educational resource does not mean that they're actually geared correctly for the exam. That's one of the big like bugbears actually when it comes to resources that are around students. But saying that still has its place. It's a good way for getting a good overall range of knowledge before you then test yourself. And it is then where it ends up with three exam questions all the way through because actually that's what we're preparing for. But it's that bit of also, because it sounds quite dull, just exam question, exam question, exam question. Like, is that a little exam factory? If it's not, it is that case of structure vision and just use that as the final resource when it gets to the end. But I think it is just YouTube, Seneca and bite size in particular to find somewhere that's good and high quality for those notes but that there are lots of nice bit of free out there and also I think in those forums particularly if you do put out people help of I need something here there are so many people that are willing to point you in the right direction either tutors themselves or families who are going through it as well and that's a nice bit around the communities around homeschools there's so many people that are just there ready and waiting to be like offering advice and support which that's I'm true aware. I'm the worst at social media. The, the idea that some people out there are willing to do it, I'm like, I really admire it. It's so <laughs> well, that, nice for me that to actually- do that brings me very nicely to my last question as such, which is that although I say you're sort of doing yourself out of business because you're telling us all about the free resources, I'm sure there are people very good as well. I will say. I'm sure there are people listening who who would be interested in finding out more about you and your tuition. So tell us for um for people that do use social media. So tell us where where we can find you on social media and any websites, your you know, anything like that. So so our listeners can find you if they want to. Yeah, so I'm at at Sinclair Education on both Facebook and on Instagram. No judgment on me for Facebook. That has been left for a couple of months. But I'm busy teaching. It's been fine. But it's Too busy Sinclair. living your life to be on social media. I, well, it's that bit. I was like, do you actually promote yourself? No. So I just get full and like, so <laughs> I get very distracted by teaching, I think. That's my one. I keep myself busy. Um, but then SinclairEducation.com is the website as well. But my New Year's resolution is to get way more on top of my social media. Home educators are big on Facebook because whether we want to or not, that is where home education takes place. So unfortunately, for those of us that don't want to be on Facebook, we kind of have to be because that's where home education sort of exists. So, yeah, it's always good to have a Facebook profile just so that we can um, we can link that. But I will put the link to uh, Elizabeth's Sinclair Education website on uh, on the notes in our Facebook group. Well, no, I am on Facebook groups as well as Ibby Voxels. I'm always happy to give advice. I might be slow getting to it. I'm not as, yeah, like some people are very proactive as they're going through, which is lovely to see. Like, it's so lovely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast oh, today and guiding me. us through biology. It's been lovely chatting to you and uh, look forward to speaking to you soon. Yeah, bye. Thank you so much for joining us for today's Home Education Matters podcast. See you at the next one. Have a lovely day.